right, everybody, go ahead and grab a seat and uh, grab your Bible. We'll be in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Um, if you're just joining us, we're in this series uh, through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, uh, really exploring this question. Uh, what does it mean to live by faith? Uh, the New Testament tells us that uh, Abraham is a model for all of us, that what we see in his life is really meant to be a guide for all of us uh, as we consider how we can live our life with God today. Um, and today we've come to the climax of Abraham's entire life. Uh, it's a story that the rabbis call uh, the Akeda. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for what Abraham is going to do to his son in this story. And um, I'll just tell you right out of the gates, this is one of the most jarring, uh, one of the most shocking stories uh, in all of Scripture. Um, but what's interesting I learned this week is actually this is a story that is read every single morning by our Jewish friends during their morning prayer service. That this is an important story. This is a beloved story. It is a well-read story. Um, and as I sat with it this week, I began to see why. And my hope is, by the end of our time together today, you will as well. You ready to look at it? All right, Genesis chapter 22. Um, we'll actually pick it up at the end of chapter 21 where we left things off last week. And in verse 22, we read this. At that time, Abimelech, who uh, this was an unbelieving king in the region. This is the guy that Abraham nearly lost his wife to last week, if you remember that whole ordeal. This is a guy with a lot of power and prestige, um, but he doesn't know God. So at that time, you've got Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. Uh, he said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I've dealt kindly with you, Remember, he gave Sarah back. As I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Um, what's interesting is this guy doesn't know the God of the Bible. He doesn't love God. He doesn't serve God. But when Abraham comes into the region, uh, he can see Abraham's God is legit. He is with Abraham. And so um, Abimelech, being um, maybe a really just inherently wise guy, says, well, I want Abraham to be on my team. I want to be on his side because his God is real and I don't want to mess with his God. I'd rather have the blessing that Abraham seems to be enjoying from his God. And the New Testament says something really similar is meant to happen, that as we live our life with God, that our life is meant to overflow and be a blessing to those around us that don't know, love, or worship the living God. They would look at our lives and say, hey, I don't know your God, uh, but I'd sure like to be your friend because something's going on here. That's what's going on in the story of Abraham. And so he says, swear to me we can be friends. And so Abraham says, I will swear it. Sure, we can be boys. Verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham says, hey, if we're going to be boys, I got to tell you, it doesn't feel very friendly when your minions come in and seize my property and seize my well in the name of the king. And uh, Abimelech's response is kind of amazing to me. He says, what? I didn't know that. 
Um, which is amazing because most kings at this point in history, uh, or at any point in history, right, most kings would be like, fool, you're lucky to live on my land. I'm the king. I'm the gift from God to you. Shut up and take what you get. But that's not what Abimelech says to Abraham. He says, I had no idea. I'll look into it. uh, Abimelech defers to Abraham. Pretty sweet deal he's got going with this king. Verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and he gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Um, If you've been here with us in this series, you know that word covenant, it means the promise of relationship. And what happens in the coming verses is just like what we saw in Genesis 15, that Abraham goes to his flock, he takes some lambs, he cuts them in half and lays them on the ground, and Abraham and Abimelech, just like in Genesis 15, walk down the middle. Some of you are like, why would they do that to lamb lamb? What about poor lamb lamb? I would just tell you this, lamb lamb was going to be eaten if it wasn't for this. It was always going to end badly for Lamb Lamb, okay? This is the ancient world. There's no PETA yet. This is just how they did things. And so they walk through just like Genesis 15. They're making, here's the big idea. They're making these promises to say, um, one way you could say it is they're blood brothers now. Where they've committed to this relationship. They said, we're going to be boys. We are going to support one another. You're my guy. I'm your guy. And so secure in this relationship with the big mighty king in the region, Abraham begins to put down roots. Look down at verse 33. Abraham planted a timorisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Uh, now, true or false, when you plant a tree, you're planning to be there for a while. True. Yeah. Um, and and you got to think about this. Like, Abraham has been wandering from place to place to place ever since we, God called him back in Genesis chapter 12. And so for more than two decades, this man has been wandering from place to place to place. He's never putting down roots. God just says, keep going. God says, keep going. But he comes to this region, and God brings about a situation where after all the drama and trauma in this man's life, He is finally able to set down roots. He plants this great timorisk tree. Verse 34 says he sojourned in the land for many days. He's got his wife, just the one now. He's got his kid. They've got a great home and a great neighborhood. And they're worshiping God at the altar there. They've got a great church. And all of this is flowing over into glad praise of the one who gave them all of this. Have you ever longed for this day where after all the struggle and trauma and drama in this man's life, it's just all coming together? I mean, use your imagination a little bit. He's sitting on the porch. Maybe he's sitting in his hot tub with Sarah, sipping on a nice glass of something I can't say in church. And they're just sitting back, they're looking at Isaac playing in the tree that they planted and just dreaming of how the grandkids will one day uh, be able to build a fort up there. I mean, life is good. This is where we find Abraham at the end of Genesis chapter 21. After all the struggle and trauma and drama, he's finally able to put down roots. Life is good. So some of you are like, well, I can see why our Jewish friends would recite this every day. I love this story. Um, Actually, no, this isn't the Akedah yet. This is just the setup to the whole thing. Um, I read all of that so that you can appreciate when we get into chapter 22 how jarring what we're about to read is. And so let's get to it. Chapter 22. After these things, 
God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I told you this story is jarring. Um, If that shocks you, it should shock you. Um, But what you have to realize is in the ancient world, what we're reading about here, this idea of child sacrifice, this was actually a common practice in the ancient world um, where people would take their children and offer them as a burnt offering, as a sac- not metaphorically. They would burn their children to demon gods like Molech and Baal in hopes of getting a better crop for the coming season, in hopes of winning some great victory in war, for all sorts of reasons. People in the ancient world would do this. It was crazy, it was backwards, it was wicked, but this is the world Abraham grew up in. This was the cultural air that Abraham breathed. He just said that this, he, he must have just thought this was normal. So when God shows up and says, murder your son, offer him as a burnt offering to me, I don't think the ask is so much what would have shocked Abraham. I think it's who is asking that would have shocked him. Um, Because if Abraham has learned anything, if we've learned anything so far, it's that the thing that's supposed to separate the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, the one true creator God, the thing that's supposed to separate him from demon gods like Molech and Baal is that the God of the Bible is a life giver, not a bloodthirsty life taker. And so it's jarring when he shows up and says this. And and if you're jarred right now, you're jarred for the right reasons. Because if you keep reading in the story of the Bible, you'll read in the book of Leviticus that God is totally opposed to child sacrifice. That this is a practice that grieves his heart. And in fact, if you keep reading, what you'll find is this is the reason that God eventually wiped the Canaanites out of existence. Because they were so committed to child sacrifice and they wouldn't give it up. And God said, that is too evil, that is too unjust, not on my planet. This is something that God is wholly opposed to. And by the way, if you think God's playing favorites, it's the same reason that he kicks Israel out of the promised land. Because they start dealing in some of this nonsense. This is something that God is wholly opposed to. So the question is, why would God ask Abraham to do something that he clearly hates, that's clearly so against his nature and character? Why would God ask Abraham this? And, and Moses uh, gives us a clue right from the beginning. Moses, the, uh, he's the author of Genesis. He's writing all this down, filled with the Holy Spirit to tell us the true story of what happened. Moses writes that God is testing Abraham here. And I'll I'll tell you this, there's a difference between a test and a temptation. Um, Temptation is what Satan does. So think back to what we saw in the Garden of Eden. Satan shows up and tells lies to entice our first parents to sin. Um, That's what temptation is. It's it's like, look at this thing over here. Look at how good this thing that would actually kill you is, but I'm going to lie to you and tell you it's good. Um, Think about like a Taco Bell ad right now. Like, I've been seeing these on TV, and I'm like, they look like they're having so much fun. That food looks so good. Oh, my goodness, that's such a great price. That looks so enticing. And then I go to Taco Bell, and I feel awful afterwards. This is temptation. It is a lie intended to lead you to sin, to destroy you. But testing is not like that. 
Um, A loving teacher will test her students to see where they're at so that she can help them grow. Right? Some of you are like, well, that's not how my teacher tested me. Well, a good teacher would test you not to torment you, but to reveal where you're at so that he can lead you forward from that place. And and that's what God is doing in this story. He's not tempting Abraham to something evil to destroy him. He is testing him to grow this man's faith. But Abraham doesn't know that. So I tell you that just so you can breathe out, because this like messed with me. I'm like, is he even allowed to say that? I mean, he's God. He can say whatever he wants. But he wants us to know, dear reader, I know this is shocking, and don't get any ideas if you go home and your kids aren't behaving in the car. Don't go, Lord, do you have anything to say to me about this? He wants us to know from the beginning, this is a test. God's showing up to grow Abraham's faith. But Abraham doesn't know that. All he knows is that in a world where all of his friends were sacrificing their children to the gods, Well, his God has come and shown up and again asked him to do something crazy. It's even crazier than chapter 12, leave your home and your sense of identity and everything you've ever known. That was crazy enough. It's even crazier than Genesis uh, 17 when he says, circumcise yourself at like 80 years old. It's even crazier than that because this isn't his comfort or his body. This is his boy. And so now Abraham is going to have to choose between the boy that he loves and the God that he loves. What will he do? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. This is amazing to me. He he doesn't argue with God. He doesn't say, what's that mean in Hebrew? Is there someone out there that has some different interpretation that I can hold to, even though most Christians wouldn't, that I could grab a hold of that and justify what I want to do anyway? Like, what's that mean in Hebrew? He doesn't say, I'm going to lead a Bible study and get everyone together at church, and we're going to talk about what it would look like to sacrifice my son, but never actually get around to doing it. Now, he wakes up early in the morning, and he gets to it. This is what we call immediate obedience. He doesn't delay, he doesn't theorize, he doesn't remove himself. He says, if God said it, all right, I'm going to get to it. And I got to imagine, this must have been so tormenting for this man. It's about a 50-day, or excuse me, a 50-mile journey from where he was to Mount Moriah. And so it would take about three days. We'll actually learn in the text it did take them three days to get there, walking. Uh, For three days, he's walking with his boy. And he knows what God has told him to go do. Isaac doesn't. Isaac's like, Dad, I'm so glad we're going camping together. Like, I can only imagine. You think Abraham didn't have moments along the road where he's like, what am I doing? This is crazy. I'm not actually going to do this, right? Like, I imagine these must have been the three worst days of his life. Like, worse than that time that his wife was given up to live in a harem. And he had to watch, like, her going around with the pagan evil king. Like, this had to have been worse than that. 
three-day journey. And yet day by day, he keeps walking in obedience to what God says, no matter how crazy it seems. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Um, I was working on this sermon last night, and one of my daughters came into my office, and she saw my Bible open on the desk, and she said, is that the sermon for tomorrow? And I was like, don't look at it! I picked her up, and I grabbed her, and I held her, and it must have been, like, longer than I normally hold her, because she was like, Dad, it's my bedtime, which she would normally do anything to get out of bedtime. This story really messed with me this week, just as a dad of three girls. Um, and, and that is only a glimpse of what I imagine Abraham must have been feeling when his son says, hey, dad, where's the lamb? Which makes Abraham's response all the more amazing to me in this moment. There's this little boy. He knows where they're going. His son's so trusting. He's like, I love worshiping God with you, but normally this requires a sacrifice. We don't want to come to God empty-handed. Dad, where's the lamb? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. We'll come back to that. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Um, this is where we get our word, akeda. It's the Hebrew word meaning binding. It's the Hebrew verb here describing what Abraham is doing to his son. What akeda would mean would be that you would bind by the hands and the feet. So there's no getting off the altar. Abraham Akedad his boy. He bound his boy. He picked him up one last time. He put him on the altar. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand with the knife and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And at this point, we just got to stop and ask what would compel a person to do this? And the New Testament offers us some insight as to what's going on here. So I want to just pause our story and look over at what the New Testament tells us is going on because this is unreal. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, it's still amazing, but just listen to what's going on in, Hebrews heart, or in Abraham's heart and mind. This is what God, the Holy Spirit, tells us what was going on. He's like, I remember what Abraham was thinking. He writes it down in Hebrews 11, verse 17. We read this. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. Abraham is so confident in the goodness of God. He is so confident that God keeps his promises like we talked about last week. That he says, okay, God promised me that the blessing will come through Isaac. And yet he's telling me to sacrifice Isaac. And so what he, what's going on in his heart and mind is that he is so confident that God is good and will fulfill his promises. That he binds his little boy... And he picks up the knife to plunge it into his heart and had every intention to burn him on the altar, figuring that, I mean, God brought Isaac into this world through a barren womb, and I guess if he has to, he could take his ashes and make a life from that that's somehow more beautiful on the other side than if I hadn't done it. Do you have faith like that? Because that's what Hebrews 11 calls faith. He did this by faith. He says, this seems crazy to me, but it seems scientifically impossible that Sarah could have a kid. And so if God could bring Isaac into the world that way, then why can't he raise him from the dead? I'll have some real talk with you. I was thinking about this week, and I'm like, I don't think I could have done this if I was in Abraham's position. I understand the logic of it. In terms of logic, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's to say, well, yeah, if I trusted him before and he did this, he will do it again. But just having real talk with you, I mean, I love God. And I have seen him do some things in my life um, that have caused me to trust him like I will trust nobody else. And that's not because I have trust issues. I have a confidence in God that is birthed out of experience. Like, I love him. And I trust him like I would trust nobody else. And there have been times in my life that Jesus has shown up in my life much like this and said, hey, you know that thing you love? I want you to bind it. I didn't know the Hebrew word. But I want you to bind it. I want you to put it on the altar. And I want you to trust me with it. I want you to give that up to follow me. There have been times that Jesus has done that. And somehow, by grace, through faith, I have done it. But I'll be honest with you. I was thinking about this week. I'm like, could I have done this? And I think this story exposed some gaps in my faith. That I can trust God with a lot. But I don't know about this one. So as I'm processing through all this, what I felt the Lord began to ask me is, do you want to trust me like that? Because what he's going to say to Abraham is, God's assessment of this situation, spoiler alert, is he's going to say, well done, Abraham. This is everything I had in mind when I called you from earth. This right here is the life of faith. Binding your son, putting him on the altar because I told you to, and lifting that knife with every intention to plunge it into his heart. And I felt the Lord ask me, do you want to have that kind of faith? And so I'll just pass this one on to you and ask you this. Do you want to have that kind of faith? Because I think, I think we all have something in our lives 
that if Jesus said, I want you to give that up, that thing that you love, it's time to let it go so that you can have more of me. I think we all have something in our lives that if Jesus said that, we would go, oh, I don't know. And the question I believe this story is here to ask of all of us is, do you want to trust God this wholeheartedly? Do you want to have a relationship with a God that would ask you something like this? And see, I, I was thinking about this week, I believe that our problem is not so much that we lack this kind of faith, because we've seen this time and time again in Abraham's story where Abraham will lack faith, God will be gracious, God will come through. We've seen on repeat, I hope you're with me on this, that faith-filled people can have faithless days. So we see all throughout scripture these examples of people with small and perfect faith depending on God, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't think the problem is that we're imperfect or that we struggle or that our faith is in process. I think our real problem is that a lot of times we don't even want to have faith like this. And this is where I felt the Lord check my heart. Do you want a God that would say this to you? Because um, I'll, I'll tell you this. I hear people say all of the time something like this. I could never believe in a God that would blank. And if you've ever heard anyone say this, but it usually goes, I can never believe in a God who would do this, or I could never believe in a God who would say that, or I can never believe in a God who would ask me to give this up. Because I think we all have something in our lives that we're like, hey, I'll follow Jesus, but he can't touch this. If he goes there, that's too far. And I think this is why the rabbis wanted us to read this story every day. Because what this story confronts us with is that God is real. He is not a figment of our imagination. He is not some projection of our internal self that we can mold as we want to. That he is the living God and he is real and he exists outside of us. And if that is true, you've got to expect that there will be times in your life when he comes to you and says something that you think is shocking. In fact, if you've never had this moment where God has never surprised you, I really wonder if you're following the living, risen God of the Bible or a figment of your imagination. Because it's not just Abraham. This is what he does. He shows up in our life and says things that seem crazy. And here's what I will say. It is your response in those moments that reveals the true nature of your faith. Because, man, it is so easy to claim to have faith in God when life is good. It's so easy to show up at church and lift your hands and worship when everything's going right in your life and you planted the timorous tree and you're sitting in the hot tub sipping on that beverage that we again cannot make. It's so easy to claim to have faith when everything's working in life. But when Jesus comes to you and he points at that thing you really love, that house you finally got, when he points to that career that you love and you're like, this gives my life meaning. When he points at that relationship that you really love. Or when he points at that vision of your future and says, I want you to, Akeda. I want you to bind it 
and put it on the altar and sacrifice it to me because I am better and I have more for you. Come and follow me. That is where you find out if you really trust him or not. And I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying if you ever fail in those moments that you're not a Christian. Because remember what I said earlier, Abraham's stories are full of his failures. What this is about is not about your perfection. It's about what your heart of hearts, the deepest down part of you, do you want? Do you say, I want to trust him that way? I love him. I trust him. And where I don't trust him, I want to trust him more. Or does the very concept of a God who would say something shocking to you offend you? Because if that concept offends you, if you don't want to have faith like this, then I don't know how you can claim to have faith in anybody but yourself. And so, I say that as someone who has wrestled this week I know it's so easy to move on, but I love you too much. We've got to get honest and real with God and answer the question, do I want to trust him this wholeheartedly? Or do I want to make a God in my own image that just believes all the things I believe and will affirm everything I already think? Because that's a lot less challenging, but that God is wholly incapable of taking you somewhere you can't take yourself because that God is you. Again, the story isn't about perfection. The story is about what is the life of faith. According to this story, faith means to trust God no matter what. Even when we, he asks us to give up something we love, because of all of my joys, he is the greatest. And we just sing that. And so I think we really got to wrestle with I might not be there. Do I want to be there? And, and I will just say this. If you're like, I don't know, it's probably because you're paying attention. Now, the good news is that's not where the Akeda ends. So if you're like, man, I don't know, let's keep reading. Because the Akeda is not just about the nature of faith and what kind of God God is like, but the Akeda also tells us about what kind of provision God provides. So, okay, let's get back to the story. Abraham's there. He is lifting the knife, probably thinking, I want to end it in one shot so my boy doesn't suffer. And so he lifts the knife, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and look, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. Why didn't I see this sooner? It's because God put it there. There's a ram in the thicket caught by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On that mount, the Lord will provide provide. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, saying, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you because this is the original promise that God made to Abraham. He's saying, this right here, this is everything I had in mind that day that I called you. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and together went to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So just when it looks like, put yourself back in the tension of verse 10. He's lifting the knife. Just when it looks like, the God of Abraham is just like the gods of all the other people around Abraham. Bloodthirsty, violent, wanting something from the humans to appease them. Kind of grouchy up in heaven, kind of frustrated, wanting to torment us a little bit because we've annoyed them so much. Just when it looks like the God of Abraham is no different he speaks up and says, Abraham, I'm not like that. This whole thing, Abraham, it was about you to test your faith. And congrats, you passed. And I was reading this week and I'm like, I might have some words for the Lord after that one. But do you notice what Abraham does? He doesn't say, how dare you and shake his fist at the heavens. What does he do? He worships. With, catch this, the sacrifice God provided in Isaac's place. Because Abraham caught the big idea of this story, and that is that God always provides the sacrifice we need to have a relationship with him. And so this is another one of those reasons I think the rabbis wanted us to read this every day, to remind us that when God shows up in our lives and says something shocking to us, it's not because he's trying to take something from us. It's not because he doesn't have enough grain in heaven that he asks for sacrifice. It's not because we're smelly and annoy him. By the way, if you look at uh, uh, the cults from this period, they believed that humans were smelly and the gods didn't like our smell, and so you'd have to kill people to appease their wrath. Like, the rabbis wanted us to read this every day to be like, God is so not like that. That's Molech. That's Baal. That's the demon gods. But we worship the living God, the one true creator of heaven and earth. And what this story reminds us is that when he shows up and asks us shocking things, it's not to take something from us. Because what we see in this story is... The God of the Bible is a God who loves us and out of his great love for us always provides everything we need to have a relationship with him. It's not that he comes 90% of the way and says, you've got to prove it to me with the last 10%. That's Baal. That's Molech. That's the gods of career success. We worship the same gods. They just get a, a different branding today. The God of the Bible is totally unique, and that's why he put a ram on the mountain, so that Abraham would have something to offer as a sacrifice, because Isaac was right. 
We do need something to offer the Lord. The whole idea of worship is ascribing worth to someone or something. And we all worship with our lives. We're all ascribing worth with our lives. The way Jesus says it is, if you're not sure what you worship, look at your pocketbook. It's not the only measurement, but one very objective measurement is what are you ascribing worth to? And so Isaac's right. We, we do need something to offer to the Lord. And here on this mountain called Moriah, Abraham saw once again that God is a God who always provides everything we need to have a relationship with us. That his heart towards us is kind. That he's not grouchy and angry up in heaven. But when he asks something of us, it's to give us something. And so here in the end of the story, we see that God is a God who loves us. He is for us. And this is why we can trust him when we ask something crazy. Because in this story, we can see his heart towards us is kind. And church, we have every, even more reason to believe that than Abraham, don't we? A couple of us do. All right, l- let me just take a moment to blow your mind and show you how this is stories about Jesus. Because I was thinking about this week, this is read every day in Jewish circles. I'm like, are you guys slow on the uptake? And, and I, I don't say that to cause offense. Seriously, what the New Testament says is there's actually a veil over the eyes of unbelievers that the Holy Spirit has to lift. I was like, oh my goodness, the, the Bible's true. We can be blind to what's right in front of us apart from God's grace opening our eyes to the truth because everyone, regardless of your race, ethnicity, background, we are prone to blind spots. And so I'm just going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lift the veil in this moment so we can see Jesus in this text. Did you notice that Isaac says we need a ram, or a a lamb, but God provides a ram? It's interesting, right? It's because the lamb wouldn't come until later. Much later. And and if you keep reading in the Bible, um, God's going to give his people in the very next book of the Bible uh, a sacrificial system through which... uh, they could understand more of his heart towards them. And so in this system, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, um, God would say, when you sin, take a spotless lamb, an animal that would represent blameless and wholeness and perfection. And he would say, offer that to me. So, and, and he was doing this so that, one, his people could understand the seriousness of sin, that sin is deadly, that sin takes our lives, that sin kills, but he also did this so they could understand his grace. That God will allow a substitute to die in our place for our sins because he doesn't want his people to die. And as much as he loves the lambs he made, he'd rather the humans live than the lambs. And that's usually as far as Jewish interpretation of this story goes. But the way the author of Hebrews says it is, it's not as if the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sheep could ever remove the stain of sin. All of this was but a shadow for in the fullness of time when God's own son would come into the world. And just look back at the story. Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, living a life of perfect righteousness, always loving, never hating, always trusting, never doing the wrong thing, to where when John the baptizer sees him, you know what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he's saying is Genesis 22. He's here. The Lamb is here. He's going to take away our sin. And what does he do? 
He goes to, this is nuts, guys. He goes to Mount Moriah, a.k.a. Jerusalem. And outside the city of Jerusalem, the Son of God has his hands bound and his feet bound to a tree where he is offered, not almost offered up to the point of death, but where he actually gives his life, where he dies in our place for our sins. Because I tell you this all the time, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. What we see in this story is that God is going to give what he would never ask of us. God would give us his only son in order to save us. This is how much he loves this church. And that, yes, That is why we trust him. Because he who didn't spare his only son from us, who gave up the thing he would never ask us to give up, he who did not spare his only son, how dare we think he's trying to take something from us? How will he not graciously with him give us all things, is the way the New Testament says it. This is why we trust him. Because we see in this story the shadows of the gospel of how God would give his only son so that we could have life. And when you believe that, then your life will become increasingly like what we see in Abraham. Where you begin to do things that seem crazy to other people. And where your life can begin to become a blessing that people are like, you're not a very impressive person. You've got some real issues. Like, I don't know how your wife is married to you, but oh my goodness, God is with you and new creation is flowing from you. And I can't deny the life that is now flowing from you. This is the very thing Abimelech said to Abraham. And I'm telling you, it's when we trust the kindness of God's heart towards us in the gospel and really believe that it will lead us on a fantastic adventure that can only be explained by the fact that Jesus is real, Jesus is with us, and new creation is on the march. And I was thinking about this week. I don't know of many more beautiful stories in the Bible. The thing that all week long I was like, ah, I can't believe that God asked him to do that, that in the gospel God does that for me. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And so I want to get us to worship. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't want this to be theoretical for you. I don't want you to leave here with your head more full of theological knowledge. As important as that is, I want to make this practical. And so I want to close by telling you a story about my friend Jeff. Um, Jeff was a man who was an executive in a major Fortune 500 company. It's a company, if I said the name out loud, you would know this company. And he not only had a promising future in front of him, he was living that future. He was crushing it. He had the life that we all dream about, that if we ran into this guy on a Sunday, we'd want to be his friend so we could go out on his boat with him to the glory of God, of course. Jeff had the life. He had the American dream. And then he met Jesus. And boy, does Jesus meddle. And as Jesus changed his life, gave him a new life, he began to come alive. And as he continued to grow in his faith, Jesus came to him one day and said something shocking. Quit your job and go start a church. 
My buddy's Jeff's like, I don't know anything about leading a church. I don't know how any of this works out. And by the way, my job's pretty good. Like, why don't you just let me stay in this job and be a generous giver to the church to fund lots of other churches? But the Lord wouldn't let him go. He kept calling him to it. And all of Jeff's friends were like, don't be a dummy. You're going to wound your kid. Do you know what happens to pastor's kids? They're crazy. (laughs) Say goodbye to the boat. Say goodbye to the house. Like, do not do this. He had several people telling him, no, just be like a generous giver for Jesus. But Jesus called him to something that seemed crazy to absolutely everybody else, including this guy, Jeff. But he was so moved by what Jesus would do to save him when he cared nothing for him that he's like, of course I'll follow him. And so he left his job, he started the church, and um, it didn't go well at first. (laughs) And I was like, oh my goodness, but I'll just skip you to the punchline. It's time has passed. I've gotten to know him after all this. He's told me his story. In hindsight, I got to know him as one of the fastest growing churches in our denomination. That this is a growing, exploding church where hundreds of people have met Jesus. I met him as this very impressive man only to find out he was viewed as even more impressive in corporate until Jesus told him to sacrifice that. And out of that has come a church that has changed lives and destinies that I'm learning from and you're learning by proximity from. And not only that, I don't want to impress you with numbers, Jeff is one of the most life-giving humans I've ever met. That's a guy that's fully alive. That's a life of faith that I want to And that's what happens when you trust him. And so look, I I don't know what it is for you. Maybe God is calling you to plant a church. Come talk to us. We'll figure it out. I have no idea how to do it either. Um, But but maybe for you, it's it's something else. Maybe for you, it's to to join a gospel community. and, and, And I know, especially if you're younger, that feels like death. That feels like binding your free time and your hobbies and laying it down so that you can give your life to other people. But I'll tell you this, it feels like death to us, particularly younger people, and then we wonder why we don't have any real friendships. And so maybe Jesus is calling you, it's time to let that go. To put it down and to come on into community because I have more for you. Maybe for you, there's something in your life that's just gotta go. He's like, I know that you love it, but it's holding you back. You got to trust me with it. I don't know what it is for you, but here's the thing. God does. And I believe if you would ask him in this moment, spirit of the living God, is there anything you are calling me to? Anything you've been saying to me that I've been deaf to, that I've had a hard heart and not heard you? Anything new you want to say to me this morning? promise you, if you would ask the living God that this morning, he will meet you and lead you and guide you because he loves you. He is for you. It doesn't matter what you did this week. It's not like you have to read your Bible more before you ask him. If you would in faith come to him this morning and say, and I believe you've done everything necessary for this relationship. And maybe I've been neglecting this relationship for some time, but I'm going to believe your grace is stronger than my neglect. And I'm simply going to ask, is there anything you want to say to me this morning? I believe if you will pray that prayer, he will meet you in a profound way. And so we want to give you some space to do just that. Um, The band's going to lead us, and they're they're really going to sing a song over us to start as you just take some space to pray and think about these things. And here's what I will say. 
If this song is your prayer, if the words you hear sung that I wanna trust Jesus more, that I wanna trust my savior Jesus and where I don't, I wanna trust him more. If that is your prayer, if you wanna have faith like we see in Abraham, then I wanna invite you after you've spent some time listening to God to come forward and to take communion and remember of what he has done to provide everything necessary for relationship with us. To come and take communion because it's at this table that he builds our faith. And then we wanna invite you to join us in singing. So go ahead and take this time and just ask him, Spirit of the living God, what do you have to say to me about this? Come and take communion when you're ready.